Talking Leaders is a Voquinexus production. We help leaders who want people to really hear what they have to say. Okay, let's talk about the second V, which is vocal. And that's, that's where you're actually getting onto the real speaking. That's how you sound. And you talk about various things. You talk about volume and the importance of getting volume right. And you also talk about something called vocal fry and the, yes. the importance of avoiding it. So explain a little bit more then. What's vocal fry? How about a demonstration instead, as opposed to talking to you this way? What if I talk to you like this and I just sort of creaked my way out? A lot of people will start, they take a breath and they're doing fine. And then they kind of trail off and they have this scravelly, creaky, crackly sound as they're talking. Mm -hmm. And it is something that that's what's vocal fry. That's what's referred to as vocal fry at mm. that it sounds mm. like bacon sizzling in a frying pan mm. and it's what causes it physiologically is simply a lack of breath support if you think about your voice box uh, or your voice as being a car your voice box or your larynx is your engine yeah. and the air is your gasoline so if you don't have enough gas in your car it's going to sputter along and die so if you don't put enough air through your vocal cords, they don't have anything to vibrate on. The pistons can't fire, and this is what you get. Mm. Uh, and, of course, when I do talk to you like that, what impression does it make? What do you think about me? Uh, it's difficult to actually form a positive impression, let's put it that way. It's, it, really, it really drives you to say, okay, this person sounds as though they didn't get enough sleep, or maybe they're not even invested in what they're saying. Right, right. It doesn't project... Uh, any sort of passion. It doesn't project confidence. Like I even believe what I'm saying or that I care about what I'm saying. As mm. you mentioned, it doesn't sound like I'm invested. So if I don't care, if I'm not invested, if I'm not confident in what's coming out of my own mouth, why would anybody else be? Yeah. It's an immediate yeah. trigger that makes other people say, yeah, she doesn't sound like she buys it. So why should I? D tell me though, when, because you've got a great deal of experience in, in, in coaching people in all these things, uh, either one-to-one -one and, and through your workshops. When you talk to people about this, do you think they, they know that they're sounding like that or do they not even realize? Most people have no idea that they do it. Right. They really don't. They, they may know that they have a habit of trailing off, but they just think about it as a volume thing there and kind of quiet at the ends. Um, once in a while, I'll, I'll work with somebody. I have a client now who just is a very soft talker, and it, she does tend to fry out her voice quite a bit in, right. in her speech, um, but a lot of that is more due to confidence, and she didn't realize that her subconscious, you know, as we say, the head trash that gets in the way, that little negative voice that we all have, our inner critic that can get in our way, was convincing her to sort of hold back mm. and always second guess what she was contributing and whether or not it would be questioned as being truly valuable. So whenever she did talk, it was always like, I'm not sure if I should be saying this, so I'll put it out there, but not really. Mm. And mm -hmm. until she realized, okay, so what is this projecting? What you're telling people more often than not is you don't believe in what you're saying. So mm -hmm. why should they? And why would you be up for a leadership role if you don't even sound confident as a follower? Mm -hmm. So, you know, all these things come just because of breath support. And of course, that's something that once you become aware of it, it's actually quite easy to adjust. Yeah. Yeah, because you place a lot of emphasis, don't you, in your coaching on listening to yourself and, and watching yourself on video to get an external view of what you are actually like. Oh, absolutely. Um, none of my clients, none of my graduate students, anybody, nobody who works with me escapes 
without doing some significant video recording and audio recording of yourself. And that's because the video and or audio recorder video is better, but audio has its purposes, is the great equalizer. Mm. I will not coach you on the way that you speak unless you can hear yourself objectively through a recording, mm. because we do not have a clear picture of how we really sound and how we really look when we're speaking. Uh, we know how we want to come across and we know how we think we come across. We don't know how we actually come across. That's the blind spot. And uh, in case anybody out there thinks that they don't have one, that you're super aware, have you ever had the experience where you see yourself, maybe somebody took a little home video on a, on a smartphone at a friend's house in a conversation, who knows what, and you watch that video not 10 seconds later, and you think to yourself, oh my gosh, that sounded so much better in my head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or what was I doing with my face? Mm -hmm. Or you know, what was my hair doing that day? I let myself walk out of the house wearing that shirt. What was I thinking? All of these little things. The fact is, you were there. You picked that shirt. You were speaking when that voice came out of your mouth. So why are you surprised now when you see the video? So when you watch yourself on video, then I can coach you on it because you saw and heard what I saw and heard. Otherwise, I hear and see one thing and you only know what you meant to say and do. So we're comparing apples and oranges. Yeah. The video allows you to see the reality of what everybody else experiences as a part of you. Then we can talk business. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you're preaching to the choir here, certainly on the audio side. I mean, when I first mm -hmm. started setting out podcasting, uh, first of all, I had to get over this thing about what my voice sounds like to other people as compared to what it sounds like in my head and that that, that disconnect, which is, is weird. So yes, now, now, yes. I, I talk know, about that as well in the book. Yeah. And every day I listen to this guy who follows me around all over the place and he says the things <laughs> I say, but he's not me. Uh, but, <laughs> exactly. But, but I've got over that. But the other thing I think... Um, and you, you referred to it in a, in a, in a previous example um, that I, which I found particularly helpful is the the sort of uh, emotional impression you're giving, the tone uh, that mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're using. Uh, in a lot of the early interviews I did, I thought I was being very pleasant and very accommodating and and welcoming. And then I'd listen back and there's this really angry guy interviewing these people. <laughs> I thought, who's he? And it was me. Right. And uh, I'll admit it took me a, a, a little while, actually, doing several interviews and consciously thinking about it to actually uh, realize that, that I was portraying. So I must have been feeling it, I suppose, whether it was tension, but it was coming through and it did make me seem a bit a bit snappy. Yes. Um, and and yeah, the only way I found out was by listening and listening and listening. You have to. You have to. I mean, I've done trainings. Um, every year I do a training with a, a local seminary and uh, working with uh, the young guys who are, are training for clergy, for life in the clergy, and mm -hmm. they uh, working with them on homiletics and on their sermonizing. So how to preach effectively. And the, you know, I had a, one of the young guys this past fall um, was very intellectual, you know, very much sort of a, an in his head kind of a person. And he really felt like, well, it's it's not my place to tell people what to think and feel about God and about their uh, about the scriptural passage, but it's my job to sort of present the information to them and allow them to come up with it for themselves. And I kept saying, well, but you need to to at least offer some food for thought on that. You can't just 
we still need your personality to come through. We still need to see, are you passionate about this? Are you intrigued by this? Like, help me understand your connection with it. It's still up to me to make my own decisions, mm. but I want to hear your take on it, which is why you're there as the leader. And it, he really resisted that. And then we did the video. And when he watched it, he realized he came across completely dead, flat, boring, mm. Right. monotonous droning. Yeah. And he, he, I said, you know, would you want to listen to this person speak from the pulpit? And he, he really said, no, I, I, okay, this was too much. Like I, what I thought in my head was coming across as, as peaceful and as interesting and as just open really was completely disengaged. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, good story. Good story. Thank you. Uh, before we move on from vocal, uh, the one thing I do want to hear you speak about um, is is this whole thing of, of of sort of like speech patterns, and and it's probably best illustrated by the the, the sort of notorious up speak. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about what you tell people uh, around those kind of things. Well, don't do it. That would be the short version. <laughs> uh, but up speak is that pattern that I'm doing right now where it sounds like you're asking lots of questions, even when you're not, yeah, because yeah. of that rising intonation. And the it happens for a number of reasons, but the biggest problem with it is that those rising glides in your pitch, sound they reflect a, a grammatical pattern in English known as a tag question. And tag questions are questions like, right, you know, okay. So if it sounds like I'm perpetually inflecting those little tag questions every five seconds, then the implication is that I'm always seeking your validation as I'm going. If every sentence, you know, that I said to you, okay, was it requesting validation, you know, then you are sitting there thinking, well, aren't you supposed to be the authority? Aren't you supposed to be the person to teach us about this? Why are you seeking my approval? that desperately, mm. that perpetually. So you may be the authority, but you're completely undermining that image because it seems like you're begging for validation all the time. Mm. On top of the fact that, as I'm sure you noticed, as soon as I started doing it, like you could feel the hair on the back of your neck stand up and on your arms going, oh my God, that's so annoying. Okay, I should not have asked her about this topic. Stop it, stop it, stop it. So it's annoying on when you're the person who has to listen to it. Yeah. It implies that complete lack of confidence in with all the tag question intonations. And at the same time, there's also a cognitive component uh, where it, because the, the very regular intervals of the rising on whatever word happens to be at the end, it does not draw the listener's attention to what's most important. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the keywords get lost and in just the, the stream of sound. And that has an impact on their ability to really process what you're saying. So there's both cognitive implications and emotional implications for how they capture what you're saying or completely ignore it or miss it otherwise on top of how it makes them feel about you. Mm -hmm. So it's it just, there's absolutely nothing good about it. So when people do this though, do they know they're doing it? No, this is the hardest part. People who have I mean, who have almost any of these habits rarely know 
that they do it, unless maybe they use a lot of fillers like um and like, they may have been told that or may know it's a bad habit. But Upspeak in particular flies under the radar. I did a training a little while ago for a, a room full of these senior national sales executives from a, a Fortune 100 tech company. Mm-hmm. And so you figure it's a room full of uh maybe 70, 75 people, primarily white, primarily male, all Gen X and baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, we came to the part about Upspeak, I, uh, one of the guys in the back who I'm going to gauge is probably in his late 50s or so, said, you know, excuse me, could, could you just give me an example of when a guy would do this? Because I just can't see it happening. And he's like, isn't that, you know, a young sort of millennial female valley girl kind of a thing. And uh, I said, actually, I won't give you an example, but come back to me in an hour. And if you don't have an answer for yourself, ask me again. So we went through more of the training and I had them do, unsurprisingly, video exercises. Mm -hmm. So as they did their videos and I gave them the steps on how to go through and how to analyze their videos. And when we debriefed afterwards, uh, to his great credit and leaderly humility, he you know raised his hand and very generously offered, yeah, I gotta confess, I heard a lot more up than I thought was inherently necessary. Gotcha. So we don't hear it. And in part, it's not just because of insecurity that comes out. It sounds like insecurity, but often we go into it because we go into what I call mental list mode. If you think about how your first grade teacher taught you how to read, she said, when you see a comma, your voice goes up. And when you see a period, your voice goes down. So Johnny went to the store and bought apples, comma, milk, comma, bread, comma, and bubble gum, period, up, Mm -hmm. up, up, down. So when you think about it, you're giving a presentation, you're giving an explanation, you're giving um, steps to take. You are, uh, each of those in your mind, it's all part of one thing that you're trying to explain. It's just multiple steps or parts. So your brain is thinking comma, 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 and then, and then, and then, and then I guess I ran out of stuff to say. So Mm. I'll let my voice drop now. Mm. And we don't realize we do it as Mm. opposed to putting a vocal period at the end. So that up speak happens to everyone at some point or almost everyone, almost everyone at some point or other. And they are inevitably able to hear when someone else does it, they will deny to their dying day that they themselves are guilty of it. Part of the challenge in that is because it's it's not just a mental choice. This pronunciation, unlike every other aspect of language, is neuromuscular mm. in nature. You have trained your vocal muscles in your throat, your lips, your mouth, all of the muscles involved to produce sound, and that includes pitch contrasts and contours, the ups and the downs, and where they go. So you don't realize that your speech is muscle memory. So it's just like a baseball player who now wants to learn to play cricket. It's the same idea mostly, but not quite. So when you get up to the batter's box and you swing the bat, you would think you should be able to play one sport just as well as the other, but there's just enough difference that you're not going to naturally perform as well. You can't just read a book or have someone give you one sentence of instruction about what to change and then be able to perform it perfectly. 
it does take practice and neuromuscular retraining. So people often are very frustrated with not being able to change that upspeak pattern once they become aware of it. And they really do have to shift from just the awareness piece to making it a new normal uh, through practice. Okay, I was going to say to you. So, what what can you do? And if you can't you can't hear it, what can you do to make sure that you're not doing it? But you just have to keep trying and listening back and trying and listening back. Uh, yes, that's actually one of the the most effective ways. And depends on the person because speech in many and pronunciation is like music in that there are those who have near who have perfect pitch and those who have a tin ear couldn't carry mm-hmm. a melody, couldn't carry a tune if it had a handle in a bucket. Yeah. And it's the same with, with Upspeak. There are clients I work with where once I point it out to them, we'll start talking and 10 seconds later, they'll, they'll stop and they'll go, wait a minute, I'm doing it, aren't I? I just did this and I did this and I'll look at them and nod and go, yes, exactly. And then they'll, so they're super sensitive where they can hear it as soon as it starts to come out of their mouth. Now we need to take it, you know, another step further and get them to recognize how to not produce it and not just hear it as soon as it's already out. But that's certainly better than not hearing it once it's out. So it's Mm. all stages in progress. Mm. But yes, the recording is by far your best ability to be able to go back and say, I did hear it again. And I have worked with people who do have that tone deaf uh, issue where it becomes really difficult because they simply, even on a recording, have a hard time hearing it. Really? Wow. Yeah. But like super, super musically tone deaf people. Another annoying aspect of, of the way sometimes people speak, and I, I can I come across this quite a lot when I'm interviewing people, is is the umming, umming and erring and the you knows mm. and the did you get my drift? Is there anything that that you can do to help people with that then to to help them eliminate those ums and errs and those fillers? Once again, recording is usually a good uh, first step because they don't realize how often they say it. If you've got a recording, one of the things that you can do is to literally take a pencil and a piece of paper and just make a tally mark Mm. and for every time you hear yourself say it so in the course of the two and a half minutes that i was talking about topic x how many times did i say um or did i say like everyone has a filler of choice a a crutch that is their common word or phrase and it may not be something as commonplace as um or like or you know which everybody recognizes as fillers but There are what I like to call educated fillers, which are words that are bigger, a little bit more intellectual sounding that people pepper here and there throughout their uh, throughout their speech. That is their way of filling in a gap Mm -hmm. without like what? what? Do you have an example? Like, sure. Like, probably, basically, pretty much, right? Actually, I just did a training with uh, at a local university's. Um, startup business incubator. And uh, I was doing some pitch coaching for a couple of days. And there was one guy who had this terrific business venture he was building. And I realized that his crutch word, uh, and it's almost like when you're playing poker, this is what people will listen for, because that's when I know you're bluffing. Right. When I hear the word basically come out, he Uh was so polished yeah. on everything else that he said. But any time the word basically prefaced something, yeah. it was his indicator that he was mostly confident, but not 100% sure what he was saying and hoping that we weren't going to question him on it and that we'd buy it anyway. Right. I, it, it's interesting you say that because I find that when I interview people, those fillers start to come out when somebody is, is they're not so sure of their ground. 
while there is the bluffing piece of it, there are others who have just created this habit that's so deeply ingrained that it's not, it has no correlation to their level of confidence. It's just almost a, it almost becomes like a stammer for some people. I worked with someone, uh, a relatively high level executive, a, a local organization, a local nonprofit who was, they wanted him to be able to go out and do a lot more conference presentations and fundraising, but they knew that they could not put him in front of a microphone because if he, to the extent that he wasn't on script, his propensity to use the phrase, you know, was so prolific that even in meetings, it got to the point where some of his coworkers would take bets in advance of the meeting on how many times he would say it, you know, oh, in the right. course of the yeah. meeting, they yeah, would take yeah. tally and then they would not be paying attention to what he was contributing. They would just be making tally marks. And I believe the highest one that they had recorded that they told me about was about 47 times in under five minutes, which came out to less than one, you know, every six seconds or so. Hmm. That's insane. Yeah. And of course it was getting in his way. And when you have those kinds of bad habits, it can really be a career derailer unless you get them under control. And yet probably if you spoke to him in the coffee break, he'd be fine. You wouldn't get them. It's just when he it was in that, that sort of presentation mode that came out. That's the irony. It was not. Ah. That was his normal default oh, really? setting. And it was something that was part of a, a family dynamic. Right. It was something that had been part of his environment from the time he was young. Everybody at home did it. A lot of his friends did it. It just, it, really was taking over for him. I don't know anybody else from his childhood to know to what extent it really infused their speech. But for him, it was it was a career. It, it did have the potential to be a career, at least limiter, if not derailer. So were you able to help him? Significantly, yeah. We reduced it by about 90%. Oh, excellent. 